Welcome back to another month with Roses All Trash. My name is Ryan. I'm Catherine. This is a podcast on justice readings and how we live our real life in pursuit of justice, oriented toward justice, informed by justice, in conjunction with Read Community, which is a reading community with members in over 13 countries. This month, we have a doozy of a theme, the horror of interpersonal relationships. We actually got this idea from one of our guests on the podcast, the incredible Abby Holgerson. So go and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. But this month, we'll be reading books that really deal with how we understand other people through our own subjectivity and how we see ourselves through other people, whether them being lenses or them being the eyes we use to see ourselves. As always, we'll be speaking from a lot of our personal relationships, a lot of our personal experiences and memories. This week, we read Bluets, Bluets by Maggie Nelson. So I wanted to start with kind of a quick overview of the book for anyone who hasn't read it. It's an incredibly narrow book, so it's a quick read, but it's a series of little poems that are numbered, and it's discussing her love of the color blue throughout her life how important it is to her, but obviously it branches out into other topics. This love she has for a man who left her for another woman and the experiences of her friend who survived a terrible motorcycle accident and became a paraplegic and her sense of agency, her sense of shame, her relationship to pain and to the like, sort of mundane sublimity, Yari put it one time, of life and to the beauty that is in the world. And it's really a breathtaking book. Definitely recommend it. The main or the first question I had is a very generalized jumping off point is she's defining blue as like this incredibly important part of her life and her identity. And I wanted to know if there's any color that you feel the same about for yourself or like for this period in life, like what color would define it? And not like what's your favorite color, but like what color resonates with you? That is such a good question interesting color that defines my life well you know how some people will say like oh i have a superpower like i can always find a parking spot or like oh i always know when the microwave is about to like ding or whatever it's like a fun fact so i i try to like think about that sometimes so i'm not not caught off guard in orientation circles and stuff um recent college graduate you know i can often predict the next pantone color of the year and it's not just like oh what color is going to be like popular or trending or whatever but like a couple years in a row I was able to guess like oh it's gonna be like the marsala color oh it's gonna be like pale blue oh it's gonna be green it's gonna be the sunset color like I don't know I'm not really sure what it is this year but in regards to that I've really been liking pink again so that's my next prediction I guess <laughs> it's a coincidence I'm holding pink nail polish like as we speak <laughs> what about you this okay this feels like a cop-out answer but I'm gonna say blue and it's not just because I read uh, Bluettes. Blue or cream? I've always been a very like neutral person, super into like one of those like all black people in high school. And I, I wore a lot of red as well. It was red or blue or, or black. And I'm realizing that blue is such a great color with such a variety of hues, especially like a true like an indigo blue or like a cadmium blue. A really intense like royal blue is really, really drawing me right now because there's a brightness and a vibrancy to it, but it's not necessarily neon. It's not a shocker. It's not as dramatic as red is. And that's something I really, I really have been gravitating towards. And cream as well, because cream is a color I always, always loved and admired, but like was always scared of because it, it could get dirty and I, I can't keep things neat. Like I spill so much coffee, but I've been like wearing more cream toned clothing recently. And I realized that like, okay, sometimes I'd spill coffee on it and like, it's fine. Like I literally just wash it out. 
or like sometimes there's a little scuff on it like it doesn't matter no one cares i feel like that's been a revelation for me I and mean, specifically with clothing is that i've been wearing cream in this period of my life and i'm not scared about what happens if it gets dirty i'm like it's okay we'll just it's fine you know yeah i know you spoke in previous episodes about how that's kind of one of your like biggest irrational fears like you never you you just feel dirty sometimes when really what you mean is like you feel insecure you feel like you don't belong or something but that that manifests as like feeling dirty or feeling cluttered cream coming in like what do you think that means for that fear i feel like it's a baby step towards addressing that fear if i'm able to wear cream and like be okay with the fact that like yes it will get dirty and like sometimes it will get stained in a way that i can't wash out but like that's okay like i can still wear it and still look good even if there's an imperfection like I feel like that's a greater metaphor for like accepting the imperfections in my life and knowing that like it's still beautiful, but it's not quite as brave as wearing a stark white. I would never wear true white. It's always cream. It has to be off white. That's interesting because you say you're a really cool toned person, like your your skin and hair is cool toned. So and cream has a yellow undertone, no? I think cream's my cream and like maybe like true red are like the only warm toned colors I, I wear or lean to. But even red, not that much anymore. I, I wore it a great deal as a teenager. Red has phased out of my life slowly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, red was big for me in the first couple years of college. And then lately I've been into burnt orange. I think that's all that's cropped up a couple of times. But my earliest like relationships to color, the the deep blues you were talking about also come into play because I had a school uniform from kindergarten to age six and it was like a deep purple undertoned but not definitely not purple blue and there was black plaid stitched over it so it was like a shadow and there were like yellow lines bright yellow like chick yellow lines stitched through it too so that's what I remember but I also going even further back when I was little my favorite princess was Princess Aurora she was Sleeping Beauty because she was wearing like a pink dress and I loved pink without knowing why or whatever. But my parents had bought me an aerial costume and the aerial costume was like, it had like a blue top and then it just had a skirt. It wasn't like fins or anything, but it was like a skirt and it was like this teal, like taffeta, like, you know, blue overlay, whatever. And I was like, ah, oh, well, since I have this costume, I guess I'll just have my favorite color be blue. You know, and I think that was is very revealing of my personality, like overall just being like, you know, what's realistic? Like, let's look on the bright side of things. Like, let's just change something about me to fit the situation. I don't know. I feel like I've always been, this, this is going to be so mean to so many people I went to art school with. I've always been a little bit like derisive towards people who use the like primary color palette. And like, you know what I'm talking about? Like it's the blue, the red, the yellow. Uh, there's a checkerboard pattern in there somewhere. Definitely some triangles. They're definitely talking about the concept of joy and play through their artwork, you know? There's a bucket hat. There's wide, like, pants. Absolutely. <laughs> some, like, circular drawn-on blush that's, like, vaguely clown reminiscent. You know, it's clown adjacent. Puppets are also probably going to be involved. Uh, many of my friends are puppeteers. And I'm sorry. That sounds so mean. I wish but, I like, could say that phrase. Many of my friends are puppeteers. <laughs> and I and I do respect puppeteers. It's, you know, it's a craft. It's an art. They're not necessarily mine. And actually, I don't think a lot of my friends really have this particular aesthetic I'm describing. But it's like the child's, like the primary color aesthetic. And I'm like, I've gone through the red phase. And I'm like in the blue phase right now. And I'm really scared of what if I go into a yellow face because I hate <gasps> yellow. I think it's so ugly. I hope you do. 
you know, yellow has, <laughs> yellow, people say, is like a color of youth. To me, I feel like a lot of yellow flowers, they are very nostalgic. And that's because we're not in our youth anymore. Even if they represent our youth, really that youth is colored by like our age. And so to me, a lot of yellows look very gentle and like homecoming and like old, <laughs> but in like a in a very graceful way. So I think that's a really cool idea. Like you go, you getting into yellow in your, I don't know, in your 30s, maybe. <laughs> I did used to have I used to have a yellow fountain pen which was a gift from my dad and I used it for years and the pen itself ended up cracking open so I had to get rid of it because it's no longer functional but I used it for years and years because I had a refillable ink cartridge in it too that worked great and it was like a true like a metal nib fountain pen it was fantastic and I love that pen and I carried it with me everywhere but it was a true bright yellow it was beautiful yeah yeah I love a fresh yellow that's such a luxury actually fountain pens yeah, this is a little bit off track, but do you do you have any small luxuries like that? Or maybe this is exactly on track. Mundane sublimity. Maggie Nelson building her temple of blue things. It says that she has like a room or something, and she like or a windowsill maybe, where she just places them all. She talks about the like gifts and the fragments of blue that people bring her. Her blue correspondence. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, I don't love all of her, her lingo. <laughs> or like all of her little motifs but I really like that idea of blue correspondence because that's something that's a feeling I really relate to I always feel like less cool than everyone else and I feel worried often that I go about life and friendship by like collecting people who like do all these cool different things and I've noticed like oh I'm always the person that's bringing my friends to meet each other as opposed to like me meeting a lot of my friends other friends or something like that but the way she's putting it again gives me that feeling of like an arc completed a correspondent coming home like touching base it is such a beautiful word I should call all my friends my correspondent correspondents of love <laughs> yeah well you have I mean, such an appreciation for objects. What are your little luxuries? Or maybe we shouldn't think of them that way. Because for Maggie Nelson, she sees these blue items, obviously not as luxuries because most of them aren't, but she sees them as things she's always been looking for, but she hasn't been able to go get them. If we, you know, try to turn it on like her looking at herself, it's these pieces that already belong to her that were meant to belong to her. Yeah. I really love that. Something I also love is she talks about how like having them on display fades the color and like she knows she's actively ruining them by like letting them sit in the sun, but like she can't bear to put them away because like that's, they're not meant to be put away. They're meant to be there and to be appreciated. I mean, that's something I've always struggled with. I'll have like a fancy, like a skincare thing or something like that. And I'll be like, I can't use it. Like I have a face mask I bought literally three years ago. It's like a sheet mask. And I was like, I have to save this for a special occasion. And then you never use it. And I'm probably gonna have to throw it out. I have to confess something. In high school for my birthday one year, you got me a block of Lush soap, rose scented soap. And it was wrapped in saran wrap, I think. Maybe at the store. I th no, I think I put the saran wrap on there because the roses were falling off. Well, I still have it. I've never used it. Because I'm like, oh, I need, there needs to be a nice, there needs to be an occasion or whatever. But now it's just like a little monument. <laughs> it still smells like rose though, which I think, you know, it's an organic product. <laughs> I used to do that with perfume. Like I'd have all these little mini perfume samples that I'd have and I'd never use them. Or like I would save up and I would buy a bottle of perfume because I love perfume. And I'd have like my one bottle, but I'd never use it. And like the smell would disappear because I wouldn't use it for like two and a half, three years. 
But now what I do is every night before I go to bed, I spray a little perfume on my wrist so that I can smell it like a little on my hair. That kind of like defeats the purpose of perfume. Like it's supposed to be so you smell nice for others, but it's like a big part of my nighttime ritual now is like, even though maybe I'm like wasting my perfume or whatever, it's something I have, you know. I think it's great because you don't necessarily know if you're like going out and wasting on somebody else. But when you're thinking about it, okay, well, is it worth it for just me to smell it? The answer is always yes. That's kind of like a bottom line. Like, of course. <laughs> or like being afraid to light candles, you know? These candles are so expensive. I know. I need to get into a fountain pen again. That seems very frivolous. But I remember carrying it with me like every day in high school and like how excited I was just to write to draw because I had like my pen. It made me much more conscious of the act of writing, even if I'm just like journaling, you know? It's like that TikTok sound. You need to start romanticizing your life. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do it. We have to kind of go back to our high school values in that way. You know, I, I feel like I spend so much time and energy trying to make sure that I'm grounded and make sure that I'm not like fooling myself or thinking too much of myself because I'm like afraid of deluding myself and of like everything coming crashing down and realizing, oh, nothing's the way I actually wanted it to be. I just needed it to be. So I pretended there's a lot of delusional people in my life and I don't want to be like them. So... But the idea that, like, I can actually consciously put a toe back into that water of, like, self-romanticization feels nice. I have a really nice comb. Oh, we talked about this before. I think a really nice comb is, like, the ultimate or beautiful hairbrush. This is so goofy, but, like, anyone who has long hair, anyone who's presented as traditionally feminine, like, hair is a huge part of that, for better or for worse. But I have a nice comb that's made out of recycled plastic that I really love. But there are some places I see online that sell these really beautiful, like, handmade combs, and they're, like, $50. Or, like, a hairbrush that's, like, $150, like, those $200 Mason Pearson hairbrushes. Handmade in England, the way they've been doing it for, like, 200 years or whatever. And they're, like, beautiful, and they're supposed to last you your whole life. A really beautiful hairbrush, you know, or a really beautiful comb. And then I comb through my hair, like, after a shower, and I'm like, yeah, like, this is the moment. Women are horses. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not very good at remedying now, but you said dry brush my body before I would go in the shower. I tried that for a while. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I got one that was like a dry brush, but also had the little like massage nubs in it. So it felt really good. But I remember when I was sharing a room with some people on a trip in Italy, I like was going to get in the shower. So I started doing it. And like my roommate was like, is she brushing her leg hair? Is she horsifying herself? <laughs> She'd be like, what is it she doing? Oh my god. That's 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 the course of the American woman. Horsify yourself and then dehorsify yourself. We're all just non horses yearning to be horses. Um, that reminds me of nice shoes. What you said about like being scared to like drop stuff on yourself, like drop food on your whatever, stain your clothes. I used to not care about that at all. I would be like, well, if someone sees this, they'll just be like, oh, she dropped some coffee on herself. It's not like they're going to be like, oh my God, she's disgusting. Like they're just going to be like, oh, something must have happened. <laughs> but now I'm becoming less like that. I'm actually caring more for my clothes and I don't want to, I want to avoid washing things as much as possible because I realize just how fragile a lot of garments are, cheap or expensive, honestly. It all depends, you know, on how it's made and what the fabric is. So I really like avoid that now. And if if I'm wearing something like white or light and I like it, I think that's also part of it is like I have fewer clothes now and I like more of them. So when I'm like going to dinner or the dining room to eat dinner and I realize it's something red, like a lot of Korean soups are spicy, you know, 
I'll go inside and change whereas I would never have done that before I would be like whatever I just won't get it on me or whatever and I also used to treat my shoes very badly because I was like they're for your feet they're supposed to get worn like they're supposed to get scuffed like I'm supposed to throw them out after two years or whatever but now I'm like understanding also like as I'm earning money oh my god (laughs) shoes are so expensive and now I actually want nice shoes so the two are colliding at very bad times and I like actually avoid like creasing my shoes now I'll like avoid going on my tiptoes or something like that and I used to be like that is so much clutter for the brain but it's crazy how your like what you value changes I always wanted to have crisp clean shoes again like my obsession with like if there's a scuff on my shoes people will think she's disgusting and sloppy but I never could and I think also with me I usually only had one or two pairs of shoes that I wore regularly often only one and I would just wear them literally into the ground and that's why my shoes were always a nightmare because I just wore one pair until they were ground to nothing like grind the heels down of my leather shoes but like I've been really lucky I'm working at Everlane as a retail associate and I get a discount obviously and I get, you know, get so many 60% offs a month that I can use for like outfitting purposes. And I always make sure to get like shoes with those because I'm like, well, I'm here, like Evelyn has really high quality shoes. And so I've like picked up a couple pairs. I'm like, it's so much nicer to have shoes that I can rotate through. So I don't literally put all my weight onto one shoe constantly every day. I've been getting them like resold and like doing so much better job, so much of a better job taking care of the leather and stuff. I'm like, whoa. It's finally nice to have my feet not be like an aspect that I'm ashamed of in my outfit. No, yeah. Now I've been like realizing like, oh my God, I don't have any shoes to match this. Whereas before I would just be like, whatever, I'll just wear the one pair of shoes I always wear. I remember you had your um, black Adidas with the white stripes. I still have those. I still wear them actually. I wore them at my cafe job. That's also a reason why my shoes would get destroyed because I would wear them to work at it various cafes and a lot of coffee and whipping cream got dunked on them another thing I've never been into I would carry everything in my hands I'll put everything in like the one pocket on my outfit but now I'm like oh my god I need a bag to match this I need a bag oh it's such a pain (laughs) I'm kind of the opposite like I wish I didn't have to carry a bag like I wish I could just walk out with like nothing every time I carry a bag I'm so embarrassed like people are looking at me and thinking that bitch has stuff like exactly like I feel that way too but I can't but I'm more embarrassed to just be carrying my phone and then like sometimes if I'm wearing a skirt or something it won't have pockets so where am I gonna put my cards I can't go to the bar with my my phone and then my I'm in three of my cards you know <laughs> okay my ideal would be to have like my phone in one pocket my wallet in the other and then like keys or airpod case just lost but airpod i'm really sad i've been searching for days keys and like airpod like on my belt loop belt loop is a good idea yeah but then the thing is like also especially if i'm going out for like a night out which i haven't done in so long it's like okay phone wallet but also like portable charger and cord and then keys and stuff and then like maybe some tampons and like some advil just in case in my bag i can do a what's in my bag haul right now not a haul because i've just been carrying this one bag I can do it as well. Should I literally put it away? In my bag, I have a glossier pouch. And that has a little compact mirror and a little case for it that's in there. It has a tube of concealer. Um, It has lip balm. It has a little travel perfume spray. Uh, It has a lipstick. It has my AirPods, but not the case. It has an extra hair tie. I have a pen and a pencil. 
a lollipop that one of my customers at work gave me. Her name's Laura. She gave them to all the people there, so I'm not worried about it. And then also my like measuring tape. And then my my bigger tote bag also usually has my journal and whatever book I'm reading. And then a wallet, phone, and then a snack. Oh yeah, tote bag's totally different. But um, I was on vacation in LA recently, and this was the bag that I carried. Oh, that's so cute. I have plenty of bags, but they all look old and weird. And also, I want small bags. I don't want like a big bag with like thick. Yeah, that's the thing. You know if I, I want to have all the stuff that I want to have to feel adequately prepared for my life, it needs to be like tote bag style. But I don't want to carry a tote bag. It's so big. Yeah, and like even a tote bag is better than a handbag of almost any size because a tote bag hides what's in it. And so it's still sort of thin and looks natural. And that's what bothers me. Like a, a lot of handbags, they have a very unnatural shape to them. I don't know. Not that this is natural because it's like a tiny little phone sized clasp thing with a, a disco ball print basically. But I don't know. This is like a cherry on top. It's not like a, you have to look at this bag. Okay, here are my cards. I brought my hotel card, but I have my mom's credit card, my debit card, and my ID. Then I have a lipstick. Then I have a chapstick, and that's it. That's all I need. But sometimes I don't have pockets. <laughs> I used to have one of those like rechargeable, like portable battery charger things. I really need to get another one because like my phone battery dies all the time. Oh, I also have a French pin that I keep in my bag. Um, but it's like just one more thing, you know. It's like oh, it's another item. I can't believe I have to put another freaking item in my bag. I don't mind carrying books outside my bag though, because then I get to be like the smart aesthetic bitch, you know. I remember um, a long time ago, you were telling me about how in New York at the time, you're like, the accessory I'm seeing on the streets right now. Also, backtracking a little bit to what you said earlier, Yari is not kidding when she says that she can always predict the Pantone color. You literally always do. You're incredibly good at trend prediction. And I don't just mean like, oh, you know, the fact that like trends are often on a 20 year cycle and you know that like the color trends kind of cycle through the rainbow and like we're kind of in green right now, but we're moving towards blue. Eventually it's going to be purple. You know, most people who study trend forecasting know that, but you, you have really an uncanny ability to pick out what'll be. I don't next. know when it's going to be popular, but I'm waiting on it. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know when royal purple is going to be back, but I know it will be back. <laughs> it will. I, I trust you. I have faith in that. But you were telling me at the time, you're like, oh, the accessory I'm seeing on the streets right now is people just holding fresh flowers, like big bouquets of flowers. And I love that. That was fantastic. Uh, I don't know. I, definitely. Because you would like literally carry it like with your bag, you know, like you got a bag, you got the thing, you got your phone in front of you looking on your phone as you walk. You got the sunglasses. I think I think that's very cute, though. Yeah, that's something that like, I mean, one of my past relationships kind of taught me that is he really, really loved to have fresh flowers. And that was like every week he'd go to the farmer's market and get himself some flowers or something just to kind of have around. And it was something that like, I'd never thought about it before. But I realized that like, wow, like, it's fantastic. Like, it makes my day so much better when I have fresh flowers. Huge I also impact. think it, it, um, it conveys that you're going to and from someplace. And that's what a lot of people want to look like. They want a lot of what they're doing to convey like, oh, I can't worry about what I look like because I actually have to go do something. And like flowers show like, oh, you just were someplace and now you're going someplace. The fact that it's used as like an accessory is so funny to me, but bouquets of flowers in general are just breathtaking. When I was a kid, I never understood. I'm like, why do people always get women flowers for Valentine's Day? Like, that's so stupid. Like, why would I want flowers? But now I'm like, actually, if a man got me a bouquet of flowers, I would cry. 
Like, <laughs> really? Well, I would be so happy. He offered, flowers. but um, I was like, I'm going to go to work, and I don't want to shove them into a locker at work, you know? Yeah. I remember another birthday. You, you you just got me a little bouquet of flowers of, like, peonies, I think, from your they yard. They were, like, round roses, yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, that also feels really special, specifically in the high school context, because if it's, like, around prom season or something like that, everyone's like, ooh, who asked you and stuff? And then you're like, no, 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 it's just a gift. <laughs> <laughs> just a secret admirer. Yeah, just my friend who, you know, you see me with every day. <laughs> But instead of putting it in a locker, that's literally what I was doing. Oh, my God. I was carrying it as an accessory instead of, like, putting it somewhere. Good. I'm glad I contributed. <laughs> I that think like- I am the big bang. I think everything <laughs> originated from me. <laughs> Is that romanticizing myself? <laughs> Aggrandizement? No, way. I remember when people would decorate other people's lockers for their birthdays. they go, like, all out and they like, plan it and shit. It was in middle school, one in high school for us. Because our high schools didn't really have lockers. But so, in middle school, it was a big thing. But no one ever decorated my locker. And I would cry about it, like, every year. <laughs> and then eighth grade, I, like, told my friend how, like, how sad I was that no one had ever done it. And then she put, like, they decorated it with, like, binder paper and just drew on it with a pen. I'm like, this is worse. Because <laughs> you clearly forgot and, like, didn't really care. Which, like, is fine. I but, like I, yeah, that kind of stuff used to, like, be so big to me. Not outwardly ever. Like, I would never ask somebody to decorate my locker. Again, that's worse, right? But, like, I saw a really great TikTok the other day where this girl was talking about how she always wanted her person, like, a best friend. Like, in books, you know, where you, like, are best friends and you do everything together and your parents are, like, family with each other and stuff like that. And so when she didn't really get that, plus, like, the reason she even wanted that was probably because her parents were a little neglectful. Then she just like poured that energy into her romantic relationships in the future. And like, that's exactly what I did, right? Like, all I really wanted out of all of my relationships was a person that I could always do something with. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. I even think that could be a healthy outlet if you maintained it correctly. But at a certain point, hopefully, the real growth happens where, like she said, she stopped needing that because she put in the work elsewhere. But what is still left in the end is she's still very lonely. She doesn't know how to ask her friends to, like, treat her like the one. I really relate to that because I also kind of feel like that, you know. I have lots of close friends and stuff, but I was I was never, like, their best friend, you know. Like, or at least I never felt that way. And obviously I didn't, like, ask them that. I'm like, am I your best friend? Am I your number <laughs> one? <laughs> um, but I, for a long time I was like, oh, like, I'm people's friend. But I'm really their best friend. I think now that I'm older and, like, have have more perspective on it, I'm like, yeah, like, I have so many people who I consider my best friend. There's at least six or eight people who I'm like, yeah, that's my best friend because they're so important and like really pivotal to me and like in my life. And like, I really love them like for who they are. For some of those people, like even if we don't even talk that often, like they're still my best friend because I know we have that relationship and that bond. And that made me feel a lot better about like realizing like, oh, no one's like number one. I'm like, I don't have a number one. So why would I expect to be number one for Mm, someone else? That's a good point. Yeah, I guess if you like genuinely don't have a desire to put in that effort into someone else, it's hard to expect that from someone else. That girl did go into that and she was like, she didn't want to keep being like the chill friend. She didn't want to keep being like, oh, yeah, it's okay. We don't talk for six months and pretend to be close because whatever that's like that's chill or whatever like she was like that wouldn't fly in relationships yeah that really 
rang true with me there. Because also being able to admit that to myself, it's kind of in steps because a couple years ago when I was finishing high school, admitting that I was lonely was like the most humiliating, embarrassing experience. And I mean like admitting it to myself. Like just realizing, putting it into words that I was lonely felt like such a fucking lame, horrible, unimaginable thing to say to myself. It caused me so much pain to do that. And now here I am finding that it's still hard because sometimes I'll look at people in their romantic relationships struggling to get the love that they want. And I'll be like, oh, you can't control them. Like maybe you should just be more desirable or something. Like it's just so mean. But then like that's exactly like that's because I'm adopting that and suffering for it just in a non-romantic setting. Whereas in a romantic setting, I would never let that happen. So what is the problem? Like what's not computing here? Learning to accept that. Like I do have friends who like aren't very good at texting back and like maybe I won't talk to them for a month or so. Like, I still consider them, like, some of my best friends and, like, we're really close, but I know that, like, something that they really struggle with. And for me, learning a balance of putting in the effort, like you talked about, like, being willing to put forth that effort to maintain those relationships and build that intimacy with people, but also, like, not putting all my eggs in one basket and, like, understanding that there are going to be limitations to every relationship. So putting in that effort and, like, that commitment to build that intimacy with, like, my friends doesn't have to be with one person, you know? I can like try and spread that effort around with multiple people and cultivate close relationships. Sorry, I that was not a good response. I just like started talking. I was like, wait, I didn't have that. No, 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 no. <laughs> that was, I, I think that was good because that's what I do now, right? Like try not to put everything in one basket, mostly because I can't because like people are like, sorry, I have no room in my basket. But <laughs> yeah, how do you, how do you like ask someone for something for more dedication, for more time and effort without leaning into that sort of like addiction behavior where I'm clinging, but I also like refuse to see or admit that I'm clinging. Maybe because the behaviors aren't traditionally clingy. Maybe they're more like punishing. Maybe they're retaliatory whenever I do feel like they think I'm clingy or something. How do I put my toe in without drowning myself in the pool? Yeah, that's always, I have no words for that. I mean, thinking back to my to my last, my only long-term romantic relationship that was like very serious. One of the factors in why it ended was he just could not tell me that he loved me without me having to prompt it. Or he could say it over the phone quite easily, but he could not say it in person. And it's not that I don't think that he felt it or like, you know, that he didn't love me, but he just couldn't say it. Like he couldn't put it in words, you know, it was like a huge effort. I mean, he did, he did try it. Like he was able to it sometimes. But it's something like, you know, I would express and I would, you know, I would literally like be like in here, like just begging him. I mean, like, I just need you to tell me that you love me. Like, I just need you to say it without me having to prompt it. Because for me, love language is definitely words of affirmation. <laughs> like, you know, what people say is incredibly important to me. Like not hearing that was like a huge void for me. And then when it became clear, like that was still going to be something difficult, I kept trying to tell myself like, oh, I'm just too clingy. Like, I just need to get over it. Like, that's just a me problem. Like, I just, you know not a big deal and I was able to see the ways he expressed it in other ways like for him he was someone who would do like acts of service like he would offer to rub my shoulders in the evening that was like a gesture that was important or like he would buy me flowers like I mentioned earlier things like that um or he would cook for me a great deal and like I could see like okay like that's how he's saying or that's his expressing it and in retrospect I'm like okay there were positive and negative aspects of both of those 
reactions to the situation I was in. What I needed was something in the middle. It was good that I tried to learn how to read his particular sort of like language and good that I tried to like adapt to that. Like I would try to express my love and affection in that way by like, you know, offering to clean up for him or like offering to rub his shoulders or offering to cook for him, you know, to return it. But at the same time, that only works if they're also doing the same for you. Like if he was also practicing being verbal and like communicative, you know, which I guess goes back to what you said earlier is that like at the end of the day, you like you really cannot control anyone else. And you can you can do what you can and you can try, but you can't. You just sometimes you have to accept that that's that. <sighs> yeah, I mean, this I think is very parallel to the speaker in Bouet's her relationship with the Prince of Blue. Because she wants him and he wants her, but he doesn't want her in the way that she wants him. And also, they both want other stuff too. <laughs> it's not exactly missed connections and it's not exactly ships in the night. It's just simply like people making different choices. Uh, the quote 177, perhaps it is becoming clearer why I felt no romance when you told me that you carried my last letter with you. Everywhere you went, for months on end, unopened. This may have served some purpose for you, but whatever it was, surely it bore little resemblance to mine. I never aimed to give you a talisman, an empty vessel to flood with whatever longing, dread, or sorrow happened to be the day's mood. I wrote it because I had something to say to you. That's like, that quote hit me so, so hard. That experience of like, I mean, like in my last relationship during it, and even like after in my attempts to communicate with him through our breakup and after the frustration I felt, you know, imperfect communication is better than none. And I think people misunderstand that quite often. Like it's better to try, like to ask to do your best and like say it imperfectly because you can always revise, you can always amend, you can always clarify. But if you don't say anything out of fear for saying it imperfectly or doing it imperfectly, then it's just never said and it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think this captures a lot of how sometimes I feel very romanticized in my male partner's eyes. They see me as a symbol of love. My first serious relationship, it was close to two years, throughout senior year of high school and almost all the way through freshman year of college, this guy told me that he, he, this guy said, have you heard of the allegory of the cave? And I was like, no. And the allegory of the cave is this thought experiment posited by Plato, where he said, let's imagine that all of humanity was in a totally dark cave. And then they find their way to the entrance and they look at the walls inside the cave and they see the shadows because this is their first time being exposed to sunlight. The shadows made by the sun of the world outside the cave. Enlightenment, right? You're getting this view. But then, let's say one person turns around and they see the reality of the world that is cast in shadow. And my first relationship compared me to the allegory of the cave in his life, which is like the most blue A's like fucking little French notebook thing you could ever think of. But like, what did that do for me? <laughs> Except for give me a huge ego boost. <laughs> I mean, did it mean necessarily that like he was going to be more generous toward me? Like, did it mean that he saw me as worth something interpersonally? He wasn't a bad guy at all, and I he didn't really he didn't treat me badly for most of the relationship. But like, 
sometimes your experience, even between two people in a relationship, is not shared. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I learned that the hard way. Um, <laughs> that's such a cliche to say that like communication is key or whatever, but like it really is. I mean, I've been practicing it better in different aspects of my life, but just just say what you think and like say what you need and what you want. And like if you say it badly, like it's okay. You can say it again. You can clarify. You can apologize. Do what you can, but like you just gotta, you just gotta say it. You have to start the conversation, otherwise there is none. So yeah, and if you're on the other end, like you gotta spend a little time every so often thinking about how you feel, so you understand what you feel like it might be missing. That reminds me of you telling me about your coworker at the cafe where you don't know you do not work anymore. It's kind of the same thing. Like he regards like these normal life milestones with such wonder, just because they're affiliated with women and children. He's like, you know, I I'm a I'm the type of guy who really wants a kitchen island someday. Like, bro, everyone wants a kitchen island. <laughs> you think about your future, like yeah, he really wants to have a wife and kids. Guy wants to be married. Wants to so he wants a two point five suburban kid. You know, whole shipping which is baffling to me. This is, again, a sidetrack, but I think that when it comes to children specifically as like an ideal or like a life goal, I think you and I as people who have uteruses are women. Those two aren't exactly the same, but like for us, it happens to coincide. I think we have a very different relationship to the concept of children, or at least I do, than, than men. And like, I think as I've gotten older, I've met more men who are like, yeah, I really want to have kids one day. And I'm like, you what? <laughs> Um, this may just be me being like a low key misandrist, but sometimes I forget that men have like very comparable types of ideals and like dreams, you know? They view it in like this very like romanticized lens. Like whenever a guy's like, Oh yeah, I really hope to have children one day, I'm like, easy for you to say. Like they're like, Oh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna be there. I'm <laughs> that's literally it. I didn't mean to say that as a joke, but literally guys are like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna be there. Like what does that mean? <laughs> You're going to be doing the bare minimum. We're so proud of you. Like, I love that that's yeah. their ideal. It's the absolute bare minimum. <laughs> they, they honestly just, they just think that they're going to be like observing the kid with like satisfaction from afar. Like it's like literally a medication commercial. You know what I mean? Just like beautiful scenes of white people like jogging and stuff like <laughs> That's what they turn around and they're like, yeah, and they're like, the side effects, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Side effect is uh, the mom might piss herself every time she laughs for the rest of her life. (laughs) But uh, there are definitely women who are guilty of romanticizing parenting, parenthood as well. But I think it's kind of like they treat it as... Okay, so what happened is one of my clients got into a law school in the South and she tagged the law school as her location. So I went in the tag... And I was, like, looking through the photos that came up of, like, students who go there. I spent, like, an hour in this, like, bizarre world of bleach blondes in Mississippi, like, just prepping for the barrister's ball and stuff. Like, (laughs) they had the dogs, they had the Instagrams with the cover art for their stories. These women, I think, treat motherhood like a life objective. Uh, like life is a game and so it's like a game objective you know like a mission Um, which is fine I think it's better than going unprepared or something but I've been wondering though like maybe I should treat it more like that as opposed to just think of all of the costs it's gonna have on me and my body and my finances and my lifestyle (laughs) I totally know what you're talking about with like women who 
who view motherhood as like this like goal as like you know kind of like a check mark type of thing but also like women who see motherhood as like this opportunity for them to like martyr themselves it's like guys who are like in the army reserve or something and like talk about how difficult it is to like be a i don't know to be a military man and like you don't understand the burden and i'm like you're in the reserves you go in once a month like you get a veteran's discount <laughs> that sounds like me being like misogyny isn't real because women get free drinks <laughs> veterans get a 15 percent discount so <laughs> Well, something that I noticed about Bluets and the relationship with the Prince of Blue there is that, again, it's not a miscommunication exactly. It's a reluctance to communicate. Throughout, this whole book is very explicit, very, how can I say, the rawest feeling in the smallest amount of words. And with the Prince of Blue, I just never, we never get to see or hear the words that she has to say to him. We hear everything she has to say about him, but that letter, we don't really know what's in it. And it seems like he just comes in and tells her, yeah, so I think that I'm going to wife up this other girl. And we don't, she doesn't divulge her response to that. You know, she talks about her feelings, but not, not what she wants or what she thought would happen or anything like that. Like she's afraid to cross lines and he's afraid to cross lines too, but it's his lines. Because he doesn't want her. Like her quotes on her her relationship with him and like her discussion of her feelings with him, really like struck a like very deep personal bone. I just have like a bunch of quotes I want to read, but it's not a good response to what she said, which is incredibly insightful. Is there a particular quote? Uh, to wish to forget how much you loved someone, and then to actually forget can feel at times like the slaughter of a beautiful bird who chose, by nothing short of grace, to make a habitat of your heart. Yeah, a lot of this book is about intentionally not letting go of pain. At the same time, though, one of the main themes I noticed was that pain is a waste. Well, that, that quote that I just gave and then this, this other quote, the last two of the book say, But now you are talking as if love were a consolation. Simone Weil warned otherwise. Love is not, a cons- is not consolation, she wrote. It is light. All right, then. Let me try to rephrase. When I was alive, I aimed to be a student not of longing, but of light. And that stuck with me. Also, again, as someone who, like, it's been some time, but still, like, mentally is, like, working through the loss of, like, a long-term relationship and what it means to accept it and to move on without diminishing the value of what that relationship was. And, like, how do you let go of pain without feeling like it's a betrayal to the value of that person? It feels like the same flavor as what you say a lot, which is that, however many people can hurt you but as long as you stay gentle you feel like you're sort of doing a service to yourself sometimes it's hard to tell whether or not i'm actually being gentle for myself or i'm just being gentle for the sake of others and hurting myself through that but we learn every day no i really like that that idea of um valuing or attributing value paying respect to your pain not because it's pain but because it exposes something else, because it exposes what's important to you. I feel like the book tries hard to not make it about self-discovery, but inevitably, doesn't it, it, isn't it always so easy to come back to that? The book was like trying really hard to discuss like the importance of actual physical objects and actual people correspondence, but yeah, it's really hard to get away from like the profundity of like who am I? <laughs> this isn't a quote from the book, but this is a quote from a review of the book. 
Uh, it was in the brick. It's like this literary journal. And it was by uh, Jocelyn Parr. The review from 2015. It says, taking color seriously is a way of taking life seriously. And, you know, the reviewer is discussing how so many artists turned to this meditation on color and like what is color and what does it mean in the final years of their life like often like in the face of illness they, they begin to write about color and contemplate color and yeah to take color seriously is to take like the world around you seriously and to take life seriously and that that struck me because that really is what it is something that nelson writes about is like reality and like how the closest thing we have to like grasping reality is like the current moment the exact moment we exist in how difficult it is to fully grasp and exist in that moment. Very meditative, I guess, but color is a way of focusing yourself into the present moment. Yeah, now that's kind of making me think, well, a lot of things went through my head while you were talking, but it's kind of making me think about Rothko's most famous paintings, you know, just the squares of color and how people look into them. I love Rothko, which is a big cliche thing to say. I'm sure that the you know, debate about Rothko and all that. He's like, it's like saying you love Pollock, but but I do love Rothko. Of those of those people who wrote about color, the writer wrote to his translator, as the shortness of the book, I am awfully sorry for it, but what can I do? He wrote to his translator. If you were to squeeze me like a lemon, you would get nothing more out of me. And I think that also, not expanding, not romanticizing, not extrapolating, not fantasizing is such a key part of like capturing a moment. You know, you want to capture the, the emotion itself, not like something. And that leads me to another quote. This one's by Joseph Joubert. Clearness is so eminently one of the characteristics of truth that often it even passes for truth itself. One pet peeve of mine in like all settings, I don't like when people try to frame everything or try to like find a reference for everything. Maybe because I notice myself doing it a lot. Like I always try to find a reference for something so I understand it or I need like an example so I can get it. Sometimes there is no example. There's just like exactly what it is. I understand what you mean. That's something that I was thinking about in writing and like in my journaling recently is that it's so easy to use like metaphors and analogies for everything. It's incredibly difficult to write about something exactly as it is and to say really what it is without reverting to some to some metaphor because that's so easy and it's easy to pass it off as profound or like you know some like incredibly elegant prose when you're really just like making comparisons rather than stating what it truly is especially with emotions I feel like that's kind of like a long-term goal unable to just understand what I've seen and to express it like that would be pretty incredible yeah because then that becomes the reference even so many of our adjectives and adverbs are metaphorical one I'm thinking of right now is crystalline, which you used once to describe me, very flattering. That's also metaphorical, you know? That's why such simple writing is so astonishing to me. That's why a lot of creative writing teachers will try to get your language. First, they'll try to fluff it up, and then they'll try to cut it down so that they can cut out words that they're not necessary to capture the thing. Which is why I don't have a big bone to pick with the word very. I kind of like the word very. I think it's like a little ironic when it's used, um, especially with like a simpler adjective, because you're like, oh my gosh, this author used very. That means it must be very, like whatever it is. This is bringing me back to the idea of simple luxuries. And for me, a lot of the idea of luxury is something that's like well made, 
something that like is very much what it is like a well-made comb that does a really good job at being a comb like that's that's all I want like I want a comb like I want it to be a beautiful comb and I want it to comb my hair I don't want it to be an accessory for an Instagram photo I don't want it to be a statement piece I don't want it to be my like vanity adornment like I want it to be a comb that does its job as a comb I want things to like you know to be what it is That's why I think there's a difference between an accessory and an ornament because ornaments are exactly what they are. Like they're there to add to whatever by the virtue of themselves as opposed to accessorizing the main thing. Very interesting because we started off like loving the idea of flowers as accessories, but they're accessories, right? Not ornaments. Well, I wouldn't love the idea of flowers as an accessory walking, but I love the idea of flowers in my house. That song by Lord, where she's like, I light all the candles, I put flowers in every room. That's, yeah, she's right. She knows what she's doing. Yeah, I feel like you've said those exact words on a previous episode. I've definitely <laughs> said that, the exact words on a previous episode. Yeah, I, I want to bring more like ornaments into my life, um, like things that are there for pleasure, just for me to look at. I, I really liked so many quotes about just like the act of her looking. The feeling of her seeing all her little blue items. One is, it is the business of the eye to make colored forms out of what is essentially shimmering. And another is uh, Plato's take on vision, which is a visual fire burns between our eyes and that which they behold. I love that, a visual fire. Like there's action in this in the staying, there's action in the being, you know? Do you have any quote you want to finish off with? I've already shared the, the ending quotes, which for me were, were really resonant. But two other quotes I liked is when she said, when I say hope, I don't mean for anything in particular. I guess I just mean thinking that it's worth it to keep one's eyes open. And she says also, mostly I have felt myself becoming a ser- servant of sadness. I'm still looking for the beauty in that. Those, both of those quotes, well, the second one made me really contemplate my relationship to sadness and to pain and what it means to hold on to pain that no longer, that, well, it does express the value of what was lost. It no longer helps you to grow. And the first one I found really resonant is that I think it's hard to be optimistic and it's so overwhelming in the face of the world, how negative and like painful and difficult, just it's hard to be hopeful you know, to believe in good things. That quote that she had reminded me that hope doesn't have to be like a really grandiose thing. I can just be thinking that it's worth it to wake up and to keep your eyes open and to keep looking. And that alone is worth it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Roses All Trash, the accompanying podcast to read community. It's been really fantastic discussing Bless with you, and we look forward to having you come back next week. We are on Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on Instagram at Roses All Trash, and our personal Instagrams at R-R-R-Y-E-N and at Catherine.Shark. See you next week. Bye. Bye.